Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. note i am a youth pastor okay and so as a youth pastor i'm, a, I'm technically the executive pastor so if this is your first time here welcome uh just so you know my personality i'm wearing ducks on my shirt uh just kind of give you a glimpse as to who i am as a person um i am serious but i also am not serious at all and so uh, i hope you get the two differences here today and so if you're in this place and you're like i'm in for another stuffy service you're wrong because uh you got me today and so you're welcome um yeah, thank you. See, Heather, thank you. This as a pastor makes me feel secure, okay? So thank you. Feel free to laugh at me. Feel free to make any kind of remnants that you are alive out there today. It would bless me abundantly, okay? Because um, I'm insecure and short and ugly sometimes. So there you are. There you go. You got it figured out. Thank you. You laughed at my first joke. Awesome. We're off to a good start. Um, something to know about me is I am notorious for putting my foot in my mouth. Okay? I am terrible. My wife laughs at me all the time. There are just certain moments. I'm a public speaker by trade. Literally, it's my job to speak in front of people. And yet, sometimes in front of people, I freeze. Okay? And so, like, sometimes, um, the other day, we were going to get paint. And uh, they're like, okay, what kind of paint do you want? I would love some blue paint. Okay, do you want matte or eggshell? And I said, that'd be great. <laughs> and my wife laughs at me like, you don't, you don't get what he just asked you. And I was like, no, I was kind of zoned out. Thank you for making that aware. But my most notorious foot-in-mouth story, and hopefully people in here can relate with what it's like to have this situation. Hopefully you don't. Um, but Megan, my, my wife Meg, we've been married for almost five years this summer, which is crazy. Um, yeah, you can clap for that. We're getting old and wrinkly. Not you though, babe, just me. And uh, we had just gotten married and, you know, we were out of, we were on the way out of college and so, you know how it goes. Sometimes old friends reconnect with you over Facebook or that type of thing and, you know, they had messaged me and they said, hey man, congratulations, saw that you got married, super happy for you, hope things are going well. And I had known that this person had recently got engaged a couple of months ago and I was like, hey man, thanks so much, really appreciate it. How is the engagement and the wedding planning going? Oh, well, we actually broke up about a week ago, so not super well, but thanks. And I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I hope you're doing well. You know, if you need anything, let me know. And so I kind of was like feeling kind of junky about myself, but at the same time, it's kind of like, how would I know that? Okay, like, not a huge deal. That stuff happens. So my wife and I go out to lunch, and then we're in St. Cloud at Shields. Shields is awesome. Anybody like Shields? Yeah, I see a few. Yeah, yeah, Shields. Shields is awesome. I'm from St. Cloud. And so we were uh, in St. Cloud visiting some family, got some lunch, went to Shields, and I ran into this guy that used to be one of my youth leaders years ago. I haven't seen him in four or five years ago. And so he said, hey, Derek, what's up, man? How are you? I said, oh, I'm super well, actually. I just got married. This is my wife, Meg. He goes, oh, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're, just, we're finishing up college, getting ready to jump into this whole world thing, that type of thing. And I had not realized that my wife had told me this after the fact, which was super helpful. Um, she had noticed that this man had a tan line along the same area where his wedding ring should be. But there was no wedding ring. I neglected to see that. So I asked, how are the wife and kids? <laughs> oh, we broke up about two 
two months ago, and the, she, took, she took off with the kids, and I'm just working at Shields because I can't get a job anywhere else. And I said, I'll be in a hole. See you later. <laughs> and I walked away, and I'm like, oh, all I had to do was just say, hey, how are you? How's it going? And leave it there. But instead, I tried to be too personal, and it came back to bite me, okay? And I realized in that moment, as a 25-year-old now, I have not lived a ton of life, but I've lived enough of life to understand that things are not always as they seem, okay? it's We have lived in a COVID world for over a year now. We've been in lockdown for what feels like 250 years. It's only been 10 months, but it's been a long time. And whether you watch the news, whether you scroll on Facebook, whether you open your web browser and see the news articles, short of living under a rock, you have understood that our world is kind of crazy right now. Does anyone out there agree with me? Thank you. Gosh, it's good to have some engagement. It's awesome. Yes, our world has been insane. It's been prolonged stress, unrest. We've all gained 250 pounds. Just kidding. We haven't. I just touched a nerve. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. See? Foot and mouth. This is what happens when you get Derek, okay? But our world has been nuts. It's been frustrating. It's been crazy. It's been angry. And we're in a series right now called Among Us, which is a game. If you haven't played it, ask your teenager, because I'm sure they've played it, and they're about two games ahead of you now. But they have played this game called Among Us. A lot of us have played the old school version called Assassin, where you have a bunch of people in a room, and you secretly all close your eyes, and the narrator picks two people, and then you have this whole storyline, and virtually the assassin or the imposter in Among Us kind of silently goes around and like takes people out in the most obscure and crazy ways, and it's a super family-friendly game. (laughs) And the whole idea of this game of assassin or among us is you are trying to figure out who the imposter is, who the assassin is, because there is a certain person, a certain entity amongst the group that is being discreet and silent and killing people, and you're trying to figure it out before you die, which is a really good life lesson. And so this game, the series we're trying to figure out is what is going on among us? What is going on in our world? And I firmly believe in our world right now that there is a silent enemy, there is a silent imposter, if you will, who is kind of a puppeteer in our life, just making our life just absolutely burn right now. Okay, And I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a little teaser. It's not the Republicans, it's not the Democrats, it's not the President, it's not the President-elect, even though some of you disagree with me. The silent imposter is not in a person. It's not in a cause. It's not in a party. It's not in an issue. The silent imposter, the not-so-silent imposter, the assassin that is absolutely destroying our world is bigger than we realize. But it's more silent and more subtle. And so all we see at face value is that person that loves to post on Facebook all of the wrong stuff. (laughs) Because they're wrong and we're right, obviously. (laughs) I want you to read this in John chapter 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, I being Jesus, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I don't love to give the enemy any pulpit time because I don't think he deserves it. At the same time, I am a sports fanatic. I watch sports way more than I should. I study sports way more than I should. Ask my wife. It drives her nuts. I love sports. 
And as an athlete, I've come to understand that when you are preparing for a game, you study film. You study film of your opponent to know what they do. You study how they operate, how they run their plays, how they call audibles. You understand and study your opponent so that you can do the exact opposite and get around them. Some of the best teams are some of the best studiers. And so I have come to understand that while I don't like sharing my pulpit with this guy we called the enemy, Satan, if you will, I've come to understand that if we're going to really beat him, if we're going to really use Jesus and really get over this world that we live in, we have to know who we're facing. And so this enemy, Satan, if you will, is a liar. He's a thief. He comes to kill and steal and kill and destroy. And whether you realize it or not, some of you believe in God, some of you don't believe in God, and you're welcome here either way, by the way. Whether you realize it or not, though, we would believe that you are a person made by God. We believe that you are a man or a woman created by God. That he put in the just amount of personality, just the amount of sass, just the amount of spunk, just the amount of beauty that you were meant to have. Yes, some of you got more spunk and sass than the others. But you were literally created by God, by His hand. You are His creation. And therefore, by default, you are hated by the enemy. Because you were created by God. And what's so weird to understand is that the enemy, whether we, whether we even realize it or not, right now in this very moment, there is a battle in heaven going on between good and evil. And we know who wins, but it's a battle nonetheless. And the reason that we're hated, the reason that we're so despised, is because we're on the winning team. But we don't always realize it yet. And so the enemy, he's not just some bullish guy with red horns that we see in movies. He's smart. He's slimy. He's sly. He's deceptive. He's a liar. And he knows that the most effective way to destroy mankind, the most effective way to pull us away from God, is to turn us on each other. Because it's easy. It's so easy, in fact, that someone in the Bible 2,000 years ago made it a point to write about it in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. We're not fighting against each other, against humans. We're fighting against the evil rulers, the authorities of the unseen world, against the mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. I joke about being 25 years young and not having a ton of life under my belt, but the reality is that as a 25-year-old, I've come to understand in my life on this earth, I've never seen so much hate and disunity and frustration and anger. And can I say some of it's valid? I'm not up here to say, let's just all sing kumbaya, hold hands, and just get all get along, because it's not that easy. I, I get that. You guys like those dance moves. I know you do. <laughs> is that it's so easy for the enemy to start drawing sides. To start whispering lies and deceit so that all of a sudden it's not us as believers, us as good versus evil and Satan. It's now person versus person. 
Because now when we're so focused fighting against each other right here, we don't have the time or the energy or the focus to fight good versus evil. So instead of fighting good versus evil, it's now let's just cause them to go back and forth, 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 back and forth. So they get so tired, so ticked off, so frustrated that they don't have time for anything good. It is so easy. So easy. And in a time of our world where it's just going rampant, when we're stuck inside, when there are so many things that are wrong, if you will, so I'll tell you, there's not, not everything's great. I'll give you that. But what happens if we started to fix our focus on something else? What would happen if we would start to see our enemy for who he was? And instead of becoming so gung-ho on winning against the other side, what if we understood that if we're only focusing on winning our side, we all lost? Because if we're only fighting this battle, us versus each other, flesh flesh versus flesh, human versus human, we can't fight flesh versus evil spirit, we all lost. All of us. And so this morning, we need a victory. We need to stop getting so gung-ho, so bent out of shape about the negativity in our world. We need a victory, a true victory like the one we see in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's kind of crazy how God orchestrated this whole morning because I spoke about 1 Kings chapter 18 a couple of weeks ago. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And as uh, Heather and Chris reached out to me yesterday saying that Chris wasn't feeling super well, God began to download this message to me instantly. And so it's so cool to see how this all comes together because you, if you were here a few weeks ago, if you weren't, I'll get you caught up. I talked about how the state of Israel in 1 Kings chapter 18 was in a drought for three years. And we're not just talking about like a drought like your grass is no longer green and now it's gray and all your neighbors are looking at you goofy. We're talking like a drought's bad news. Because 2,000 years ago, there's no irrigation, there's no good water source. A drought means no fresh water. And no fresh water means you're baking out in the Israeli sun in 100 degree weather with no refreshment. People die when there's a drought. For three years, there's a drought. So the nation of Israel is messed up. On top of all that, for years, the nation of Israel, the nation that God delivered from slavery, the nation that as a whole was worshiping God, now decided to turn their back on him. And say, you know what God? You're not doing it for me. You know what God? This isn't working for me. Instead I'm going to go to this God named Baal, or this God named Asherah, and it's these gods that are man-made and they're fertility gods. Okay? So they're like, you know what? God's not working for us. He might have got us out of slavery. He might have split the Red Sea right in front of us, but he's not working. This drought is not working. So you know what? I'm going to go and try and find a God that will work for me. I'm going to go find the fertility God because maybe that'll work. And to make matters worse, the king and his wife Jezebel, who's a lovely woman, Jezebel literally in the Bible is called a witch. Okay? Not a good sign if you're called a witch in the Bible. So literally, his wife Jezebel is not the nicest lady, and she is corrupt down to her core. And so she is advocating for all of this Baal and Asherah worship. So we see in 1 Kings chapter 18 that a man named Elijah, seeing that the real enemy is not in his fellow man, decides to go chase a victory. A victory that will be worthwhile. A victory that will truly bring restoration. 
the real God, the God that we serve, some of us in here, versus the fake gods that they were serving in Baal and Asherah. So pick out with me in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 19. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. This is Elijah speaking. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. So Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. And then you can call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Okay, I'm about to read a bunch more scripture but I'm just going to kind of break it down because sometimes it's a lot when you're hearing a guy in a duck shirt talk to you, okay? We have a real life showdown going on right here. I can literally see Elijah sitting down with their mic and now in the left corner we have the Baal and Asherah worshippers weighing at 850 people. Baal! Yeah. Boo. Exactly. And in the right corner we have Elijah! At one person! And the crowd went silent. Yeah, exactly. Good job, guys! So Elijah is literally saying, Alright, let's do this your way. Real life showdown. Your God versus my God. Let's see who wins. So you'd got take everybody you got. All 850. 450 for Baal. 400 for Asherah. Let's go to your turf. We'll give you home field advantage. Go up to Mount Carmel where all of your temples, all of your places of worship are. I'll come up into your turf with my one self. And we're going to have a showdown. You can pick your bowl. You can cut it up into pieces. Put it on the wood. And you pray. And if you can convince me, if you can pray to your gods and he can come down and light this whole thing on fire without you touching a match to it, you win. I'll worship your God. You win. But if me, Elijah, by myself, it's my turn if you don't work. Everyone got the story now? Perfect. Duck man's coming after you. Verse 26. So they took the bull given them and they prepared it. Baal goes first. They call on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling cocky son of a gun. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. 
So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. And midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered, and no one paid attention. So they're literally throwing everything they can at this thing. Like, they're dancing, they're slashing themselves with swords to try and get some blood covenant goofy stuff going on. They're like shouting, and over here, Elijah's like busting a gut laughing like, <laughs> you fail, you're not working, and they're just getting more mad, and they're going crazier. Bail, you get down here now, light this thing on fire, and nothing's working. Then it's Elijah's turn. After taunting them, they finally go, he finally goes, you know what, you guys give up yet? Fine, you go Elijah if you're so cool. So here comes Elijah. Here we go. Verse 33. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, I want you to fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. They did it. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Now, you guys are smart in this room. You understand that a wet wood has a tougher time burning. We'll clear that up in a second, okay? Fire and water don't mix. Got that. Okay. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. The wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The world needs a victory. A victory that is true. A victory that is lasting. A victory like this one. Because in this story, Elijah literally had everything stacked against him. And God didn't just burn the altar. He didn't just say, you know what, I'm just going to prove that I'm God by burning the altar. He goes, I'm going to show my dominance. I'm going to show that I'm all-consuming. I'm going to show that I am so concerned about this, showing how powerful I am, that I'm going to lick up the stones, the soil, and the water. Everything. And Elijah knew that in order to prove how big his God was, he needed to stack the deck. He said, you know what? Guys, you can have your numbers. There's power in numbers. You can have 850 people praying if you want. I'll come to your turf where apparently your temples are and apparently your God comes down and serves there. You know, you can have that if you want. You can have your all of your rituals. You can slash yourself if you want. Bets are off. Whatever you want, whatever you can need, you can have. But I'm going to take my one self. I'm just going to pray that God would come down and show you who he is. And he did. He literally had to make it impossible for him to win to show that God can do the impossible. And I have to tell you right now that we face a pretty impossible situation in our world. There's all kinds of stuff happening as in the world as a whole. But I have to imagine, if I had to take a guess, there are things in your life that seem impossible personally. 
And God's showing in this story that He can do the impossible, that there is victory in Him. And I want you to see who He used to do it. He used Elijah. He didn't use Elijah and 250 people. He didn't use Elijah and He used one man who would listen, one man who would simply say, yes God, do what you want me to. I am here. He used one man to change the world of 850 plus. And not just these 850, but the people that were watching, the nation of Israel. You can't, you can't refute that evidence. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed. It didn't work. He prayed and whoosh. God came like a wave and a fire and just consumed it all. One man changed the course of a nation. One man. Not a super spiritual man. Not a man who was just special and had all these superpowers like Iron Man. One man who simply said yes to God. And it changed a nation. One man who needed to usher in the victory. Our world needs a victory. Your kids need a victory. Your spouse needs a victory. Your family member needs a victory. Your pastor needs a victory. Your government needs a victory. Humankind as a whole. Not just Americans. Everybody. Humankind. We need victory in our life. Because for far too long we've been losing. For far too long we've had the weight of the world on our shoulders. For far too long we've let the narrative of our negative world consume us and become our reality. For far too long we have had this idea that victory is fleeting and that we're always on our heels. We're always backing up. We're always getting pushed away by the world and we're just trying to hunker down and survive. And God gives us an opportunity to be victorious every day. If we will pursue Him. If we will take that victory. And what's so hard to remember is that we don't need to figure it out. We don't need to feel like we have it all you know, figured out. We don't have to do all this crazy stuff. We simply have to follow Christ and relinquish that control. And He will take us to the place we need to go. I choose to follow Jesus. Not because it pays well. Because you don't get paid anything for following Jesus. I don't follow Jesus because I just needed a cause to get behind and I wanted to feel important in my life. I don't follow Jesus because, you know what, I just have nothing better to do. I follow Jesus because I found in my life that there is no other victory. I found that when I follow Jesus, my life is different in a way that can't even be computed or it can't be understood by someone who doesn't know it. I follow Jesus because when the waves and the wind of my world come crashing in and I feel like I can't possibly make it out of this, when I feel like I can't possibly get through this, when I feel like I am completely backed into a corner. The impossible happens. Because I serve a God who loves me and created me. Just like you serve a God, or maybe you don't even believe in a God, but the reality is He wants to do the same for you, if you'll let Him. Because that's who God is. He is a God of victory. When my, fa- my, my family and friends are ripping each other apart, because it's my side versus their side, And I feel like, you know what, I want to be with this friend, but this friend's hating this friend, and now I can't hang out with either of them because they're going to just gospel each other the whole time. When I feel like our whole world is perpetually miserable, and I feel like all hope is lost. I follow Jesus because I don't have to follow that narrative. I get to follow one that is filled with joy and hope. I wonder what our world will look like if we were as passionate 
about loving, serving, and sharing who God is as we were about sharing our profile and our Facebook stuff. What happens if we took that same passion about proving our point on social media to sharing about the love of Jesus? Or not even sharing it, maybe just figuring out who it is for you. What happens if our life and our passion for football, for snowmobiling, for fishing, for hunting, for shopping, for whatever it is that you do, what if that same passion that we all have within us went right to serving Jesus? And I'm not saying get rid of that because I'll tell you what, I'm watching all three football games today. If that's okay. (laughs) I am passionate about football. But I've been learning what happens if I put that same amount of passion into loving and serving Jesus personally. What would happen in my family's life if I took that same passion and drive to grow more in my faith? What would that look like for my family? What would that look like as a husband and as a dad? What would that look like as a youth pastor? What happens if I spent just a fraction of the time on my knees praying for my students by name that they would find the love and joy of Jesus? What would that look like in our ministry? If I took that same drive and that same passion and and propelled it to loving and serving Jesus, what would that look like? I think, and I don't think because I know, because I've seen it, the atmosphere changes when you say yes to God and fully commit to Him. Instantly. Well, Derek, you're saying if I just give my life to Christ and all of a sudden now this, my situation will get way better? Nope. But your perspective will. Your perspective will change instantly. Because no longer are you fighting the world. No, no longer are you fighting against me versus him. No longer are you getting battered by life. Now you have a God pushing behind you who cannot be stopped. And when you have that perspective, all of a sudden now you have victory. Because now you understand that you can bring all you want. You can bring all the world's problems. Baal had 850 people. Home field advantage. He had all the stuff on his favor. Just like the world has all the stuff in their favor. The world's got negativity. The world's got lies. The world's got poverty. The world's got hunger. The world's got thirst. The world's got all this negative stuff that is going to threaten to starve you and relinquish you and crush you. But what the world doesn't have is a God who can do the impossible. The world doesn't have a God who can literally make a watered, nasty, flooded altar get consumed in a matter of moments. I'm challenged that in our world right now, that we have an opportunity. The world is burning right now. The very fabric of our world is disintegrating. I know that's super encouraging. But the thing is, it's real. Like I said, you don't have to be searching for what's going on in our world to see that there are things that are literally going to be historic that we're living through right now. And it would be so accepted, so understandable, if we just joined in on the misery. You're almost encouraged to fight your battle. Well, Derek, what's happening? You know, this side, they are so wrong. Like, can you really tell me that you love God and you stand for this? Can you really tell me? No, I'm not standing for it. But I'm also understanding that there are battles that I can fight certain ways. I'm also understanding that I can't fight fire with fire. I'm going to fight fire with water. 
And so instead of just spewing my opinion, instead of just spewing my hate, instead of just spewing, oh yeah, this sucks. The world's going down. We're all done. Like, I hope you make it because I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. If we give in to that, we are no longer claiming that victory. We are just accepting the loss. We're just joining in. And I have come to understand that in this time right now, more than ever, the way you live your life makes a big difference. I'll tell you one thing. I know I keep hitting on this, but I think it's something that I think really God really wants to show all of us. There is a whole bunch of political stuff that I don't agree with. My wife and I don't always see eye to eye in the same house. But we have made a pact to instead of just saying our opinion, trying to do something with it. Instead of just saying, here's what we're going to do, and saying, I've, I've been silent enough, here's time to do this. We've said, you know what? Let's take the moment to genuinely pray for our leaders. Because I'll tell you one thing. King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they weren't good leaders at all. But Elijah still did something meaningful. He didn't follow King Ahab and King Jezebel. He actually opposed them. But do you know what he didn't do? He didn't go up to the palace. He didn't take his dagger and kill him himself because that's what God wanted him to do. He waited for an opportunity to show who his God was. And he took it. He didn't fight fire with fire. He said, you know what? I'm just going to let my God speak for himself. Here he is. And so I'm here to tell you that your political ideas and, and what you feel about are valid. I'm not going to get up on this stage ever and give you mine. Because it's divisive. It's human versus human. And yes, they're real issues and we've got to fight for them. But I'd encourage you, is that battle worth losing our witness over? Is that battle worth losing a chance to show that God is bigger than all of it. You're going to have a tough time convincing me that there is. And I know I just ticked off half the people in this room. You're welcome. I wanted to come and speak truth today. Not a message that was going to tickle your ears. Not a message that was going to make me well-loved. I wanted to preach a message that would genuinely challenge our church. Not to just be quiet on social media. Not just to just say, well, alright, whatever, let's say sing Kumbaya. I want you to fight. I want you to fight your battles and choose who you're going to fight with. Because I'll tell you one thing. Just when I'm getting fed up with the world, I get a text from a youth student. Sometimes it's about random stuff like football or video games. But sometimes it's a text from a student saying, Derek, I need some help. And in that moment, I understand that the sake of this person, the well-being of this person, the eternity of this person is so much bigger than everything else that i am just been stressed out about. And in that moment, I'm starting to understand that if we're lucky, we've got 90 years on this rock. 
they're going to be gone in an instant. And I want to leave a legacy of one that is not consumed by what I believe, but by what I lived. I want to leave a legacy of people. I want my kids to watch their dad and watch their mom love people like crazy, even if we disagree. I want my kids and their kids and their kids to grow up and not see a pastor, but to see a man who genuinely loved people where they were at. And I would challenge you that the same thing is being asked of all of you. Elijah wasn't perfect. He made all kinds of mistakes. But he didn't stop pursuing who God was in his life. He didn't stop fighting. And so today, my challenge to you is to fight your battle well. To figure out how you can claim your victory. I want to close with this story, so Kyle, you can come on up if you want. Maybe even a little bit early today, you're welcome. This is not theory for me. This is something I've been challenging in the last year and a half. If this is your first time here, you might have never heard this, but last November, a good friend of mine that I went to college with, his wife and him were recently married about a year in, and they were pregnant with their baby, and it was just this awesome, awesome love story, great friends of ours. And uh, when she was 32 weeks pregnant, there was a freak accident that caused her to pass away unexpectedly. And they did an emergency C-section, they got the baby out, and so for three or four days, my friends and I would spend every day down in Minneapolis at the NICU, literally taking over that NICU. Literally, they had to move some, some beds out of the way. They, they, they gave us our own little section of the NICU because there was just such an influx of people coming in and praying. We would sing worship songs together, just believing that God would take this little baby at 32 weeks that was underdeveloped and undercooked and just believing that God would spare her. And what's crazy, in this moment, my, 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 my good friend just lost his wife. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a spouse. To lose my wife. My wife and I talk about all the time how traumatic and deep that would be. But in that moment, I literally watched my friend literally just changing the atmosphere of that NICU because he was so hopeful. He was still believing that God was still going to heal his baby girl. He was still believing that his wife's life would not be in vain. That the doctors who were probably atheists, the doctors who may have not believed would see that, you know what? This man just walked through one of the most intense and traumatic life events and he still has hope. So what the heck is he doing? And it wasn't fake, it was real, because he had the victory. And as the story would go, one of the toughest things I've watched was, after all those days, all those prayers, they had to pull the life support off Minnie, his baby girl. And she passed away, and is in the arms of his loving mama, her loving mama. One of the most intense things I've ever watched. But one of the coolest things with that story is that at their memorial service, half of the place was filled with the doctors and the nurses who helped both his wife and his daughter because they were so empowered by his story, so empowered by the hope that he had. And my good friend would later find love again. He would later, he just got married. It's a beautiful love story. He loved it. There's so many more details of the story, but I'm so challenged by that story because he literally lived what he preached. He 
he literally found victory in the worst possible circumstance because he claimed it. He said, you know what, God, I believe that you're going to make this work. God, I believe that somehow, some way, this is going to work for me. I believe somehow, some way, we're going to make it out of this. And whatever you want to do to show her story, do it. And I could see him when he was gritting his teeth, praying that prayer with tears rolling down. I'll never forget. This is the most vivid memory I have of my friend Josh. It was so powerful. My wife and I are sitting in the front row of the memorial service. He walks in the doors of the memorial service and he sees a, a picture of his wife Mallory on the front. And as soon as he sees a picture, he just balls, or just balls, sobs. He goes to the front, front row, and they start playing worship music. He just does this. Truly surrendering to God and worshiping, believing, not feeling like he's got the hope, but believing that he has hope in Jesus, believing that somehow, some way, his heart would come back together, believing that somehow, some way, his life's, his wife's life, his daughter's life would be something God would use for something awesome, and he did. People have come to know the saving love of Jesus through that story because he claimed that victory. So this morning, I'm not here to tell you that you're wrong. I'm not here to tell you that you should be ashamed. I'm not telling you here that you're wrong for doing anything you've done in the past week, in the past month, in the past year, in the past 45 years. I'm not here to sit here and make you feel guilty or shame or saying you're wrong. I'm here to tell you that you can choose victory. Through Jesus. And if you've never accepted that, if you don't know what Jesus looks like in your life, I'll, I'll tell you it's this simple. Jesus, I'm sorry. I've messed up in my life, but I pray you'd come into my life. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that He is Lord, that He will come into your life. So really practically, if you need that victory in your life, I'm going to challenge you with three things. First of all, pray. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation. Not the good ones, not the bad ones, not the ones you feel like it, not the ones you don't feel like it. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you need peace in your life, I encourage you to pray. Just pray that God would genuinely heal you or do whatever you need. The second thing after prayer, find truth in your life. It's not going to be found on mainstream outlets. It's not going to be found in that person you disagree with. It's going to be found in people that genuinely love you. Find somebody in your life that you can genuinely pour into, that they can genuinely pour into you. And truth, real truth, is found in the Bible. And sometimes it's daunting to pick that big book up and even know where to start. If you're looking for that, message me. Email the church. Leave a connect card. Whatever you need. We will help you get into the Word because that is where true truth and encouragement is going to come from. And the last thing, walk by faith. You're going to walk out this door. You're going to walk back into your life, whatever that looks like. You might be walking right back into the storm of your life that you walked in here with. But let me challenge you that you can walk out different than you walked in. You can walk out with the God of the universe at your back, fighting for you, going before you, on your side, fighting with you, if you'll let him. Your circumstance might not change right now, but your perspective can. 
if you believe in Him. The same God that made a waterlogged bull get zapped up with fire is the same God that can fight in your life right now. If you let Him. So I'm going to pray. And if that is what you want, just simply agree with me. Just simply say, yes, God, that's me. God, we need victory in our life. God, we live in a world that is crazy right now. But God, we're not oppressed. We're not so far gone that we can't make it out. God, this world is crazy. But you know what, God? You're bigger. You're greater. You're wider. You can make even the most impossible and hopeless situation possible and full of hope. So God, today, I pray that we would walk out of this place with joy. We'd walk out of this place with peace. We'd walk out of this joy out of this place, God, with our head held high, knowing that, you know what, God? You're with us. You will fight for us, and we are not too far gone. God, you are so impressed with us. You're so proud of us. You're so in love with us, and nothing can change that. So, God, today let us walk out with our head held high, knowing that, you know what? The impossible is about to become possible. God, we love you. We thank you. Heal us. Restore us. And bring us your joy. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week. Give some elbow fives. We'll get some music pumping. And we will see you guys next week. This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.